Hey, hello, how are you? This is a show for everyone else. Instead of going after top 1% of the world, we dedicate this podcast to celebrate the lives of the unsung heroes and self-made artists. For me, there has to be a really clear connection to what it's going to be like for someone to live their life and how my work could maybe make that better. The work I've ended up doing through most of my professional life is about how do you empower the folks who are on the ground with better information, simpler processes, more rational and helpful resources so that they can do their jobs more easily and the people who are coming to them for help can get the help they need. Whatever issue you're working on, advocacy has a sort of basic arc, but it never looks the same twice for the way you actually apply it because you're dealing with a, such a complex world. Things are changing all the time. Like People didn't identify as borrowers. There was no community of borrowers. There was no story that told a kind of public, clear narrative about how we ended up with so many people having to rely so much more on student loans than anybody really realized. It was treated like a personal problem. You had student loans. And there wasn't a movement to find solutions because there wasn't a sense that there was a systemic problem. A lot of times that you feel unsettled, they're part of a journey to the next place. You kind of have to go through shaking things up a little bit to figure out where you want to land. And sometimes the landing happens without you even realizing it. Hi there, it's your girl, Fei Wu, and you're listening to the Face World Podcast. I created this very platform about three and a half years ago to give this platform to people who didn't have one the podcast has also served as a springboard for me to start my own consulting business, leaving my full-time job to become a full-time freelancer. Speaking of people going through transitions, joining me today on FaceWorld is Lauren Asher. Lauren is the president of Asher Policy Consulting. Most recently, Lauren served as the president for the Institute for College Access and Success. Her focus is aligning policies and systems with the lives and needs of low-income students and families. Since social service has been one of the two most popular categories on FaceWorld, the other being performing arts, Lauren is a great candidate for our show. I thought, and I waited for a very long time to record this. She was an iron woman, and she still is today. One of the most intelligent and determined one I know. 12 years after... Lauren had been with her company, she decided to take some time off and then build her own consulting company. As a friend, I just couldn't be happier for her. I always knew that she had a lot of potential and capacity. But first, I want to fully understand what she does and what she might want to do next. Last but not least, how I can help and who I can connect her to. Selfishly, this episode was my own research into Lauren's life as a nonprofit leader and policy expert. I guess we could all agree that we don't always fully understand what our friends do. What's certain in 2018, and probably for the past few years, is that people are constantly going through transitions, full-time to freelance, freelance to entrepreneurship, to witness a transition in action was something I had want to capture and share with the face world audience at large, because it's a shared voice. Lauren has devoted so much of her professional life to help people in need. She even explained all the misconceptions of a college education for underserved families. Some will most likely raise an eyebrow or two. For example, going through school part-time isn't necessarily strategic if you come from a low-income family. And community college, on the other hand, isn't always cost-effective. What about working for nonprofit? You hear those all the time on NPR, right? But how does someone do it? Would you ever ask your children to pursue a career like this? How do they navigate the system of a nonprofit organization? Let's decode that in this episode as well. Why not? If you like this one, please consider subscribing to our newsletter. 
It's an infrequent newsletter I curate for my listeners, fellow content creators, to not just help them find their breakthrough ideas, but also to help them embrace the plateau and to march on when it feels most difficult. You can subscribe very easily at faceworld.com forward slash newsletter. Without further ado, please welcome the lovely, long-awaited Lauren Asher to the FaceWorld podcast. Sure. Thank you so much for joining me on Face World. Thank you, Faye. It's been three years since I've been pursuing this <laughs> episode. So I feel a sense of accomplishment sitting here at Hotel Nico, which you have selected for us. And looking over, you know, out to the window and see all the possibilities we're going to be chatting about. So what intrigued me for all these years to want to talk to you is because you're in an industry that is so important. And it's not just about who you work for, but your belief system and the things that you care about and the people you still care about very much. So um, without further ado, I want to mention and to get your title right. Uh, so the things you care about are aligning policies and systems with the lives and needs of low-income students and families. So tell us a bit about like what that, what that means in, in general. Oh, it's hard to know where to begin. So I spent most of my career working in social policy. So on trying to make systems and resources and expectations and opportunities work better for people who in this great rich country of ours ought to have real opportunity to succeed in their lives, in their work, in their parenting, uh, but are all too often constrained by structural and historical limitations that have nothing to do with their intelligence or their merit or their ability and willingness to work hard. Um, so in policy, which can be at the federal, state, local level. It can be the policies of a college and university or of a, a community institution. Decisions people make about how things are going to work affect who benefits and who doesn't. I'll give you an example. So for many, many, many years, America has lagged behind all other developed countries in the kinds of supports that we provide to the parents of new babies, as well as to people who have to care for sick family members, including their own parents. In the first weeks of President Clinton's first term, the first law he signed was called the Family Medical Leave Act. Now, I was not involved in the nine years it took to go from building support for protecting people's jobs while they had to take care of a new baby or a sick family member, even themselves while they were sick. But I was part of a government agency and then of a nonprofit organization that worked to make sure that that law, that the words that were signed into law, actually translated into rules and systems that would let people benefit as intended. So a lot of it was really technical. Like, how do you define what is sick enough to merit job protection while you're on leave? What is the process that an employer needs to go through? What is the process that the employee needs to go through? Who can you call if you have a question about it? It took five years after that law passed for there to be a simple 800 number that people could call at the Labor Department. They used to be told to call their regional Labor Department office. I mean, most people don't even know there is a regional Labor Department office, let alone how to find it. It's not their fault. The system was too complicated. So for many years, I was involved in making sure that people knew this law existed, knew how it could protect them, figuring out where people would get that information. Like they might not, at that time, going to the web wasn't really an option. So we went to social workers, we went to nurses organizations, we went to adoption support groups, all kinds of women's magazines, all kinds of places where people might turn for information when they really needed it. Uh, we worked on simple Q&A materials and on making sure that not just the government but other organizations could provide good advice to people and make sure that employers were doing what they were supposed to do and that employees knew what they were entitled to. That makes sense. That absolutely makes sense. And to me, I, I can relate in the way that on a much smaller scale, I remember 
all the employers that I once employed me at some point. And, you know, there are simple things like the, the I think it's called the employee support or service programs, which was there in the brochure when we signed up. But very few people took advantage of it because it's very, very cryptic. And many say it's on purpose. And what I learned was if every single employee or the majority of them actually took advantage of those programs, it will actually cost the employers a lot of money. So what I'm hearing is somewhere along the same line of maybe the policies, the programs were there kind of cryptic on purpose. Yep, that can happen. So through my career, I started off actually working in film and television production because I was really curious about it. And I had a great time, actually, but I also figured out that while it was my interest, it wasn't my passion. And my passion really was on work where I could come home at the end of the day and feel like I had done something to try and help people who weren't as lucky as I was. You know, I was born into a white family of people who had been living in the U.S. for a couple generations, who had college degrees, graduate degrees, good jobs. You know, I never had to worry about where I was going to sleep at night or if there's going to be enough food on the table. I never had to worry about paying for college. Uh, those are tremendous privileges that are easy to be blind to. And for me, what was really satisfying day to day was working with other people with a passion for social justice and doing that in a way that was about trying to make laws and systems and even really technical processes more practical and accessible. And one of the things I'm most proudest of from my 13 years spent at the Institute for College Access and Success, which I recently stepped down from, is that we got the system that you use to apply for student aid when you're going to college to make a lot more sense for people. It now takes on average only about 20 minutes to get through this, what can be a very long form if you print it out. It used to take hours. You go online, you can transfer your own data that you've already given the IRS into more than 20 questions on this form, and you can do it when you're applying to college. It used to be you had to wait until months after you applied to college, and you had to do a whole other set of tax forms first. It was just really convoluted, really didn't fit with when people needed the information, and there were clear fixes. It just took a few years to build up enough support and evidence and have the right people in government willing to listen to make it all happen. There's a series of questions coming out, out of that. One I can think of is, you know, you're, you live in San Francisco. You've been here for a very long time and, you know, we're visiting temporarily, but we've stumbled across a lot of people we meet here or who moved here. The reason for them to be here is to be standing next to very, very wealthy people and, you know, to live in very expensive places and such. And on the flip side of that, what I'm hearing you is you kind of, you know, we talked about this before. I feel like you've gone the other side, which is to attract and interact with low-income families and, and, and people. And uh, what was going through, maybe just we have to go back 10, 15 years, what was going through your head to say, this, this is a career I want to pursue. This is something that actually interests me. Well, and to be fair, the work I do is usually several steps removed from working directly with low-income people and connecting them to services day to day. The work I've ended up doing through most of my professional life is about how do you empower the folks who are on the ground with better information, simpler processes, more rational and helpful resources so that they can do their jobs more easily and the people who are coming to them for help can get the help they need. Um, and why I ended up in that part of the nonprofit world and that piece of the whole cycle. I can't tell you for sure, except that um, I came to San Francisco 17 years ago for a job at a foundation that came out of the Kaiser family, which helped build the ships during World War II and uh, put a lot of their money towards healthcare research and policy. And it was a weirdly kind of Washington, D.C. job in the Bay Area and then somehow continued to do mostly work focused on federal policy for 17 years from San Francisco and trying to raise money from people and foundations that would help support the causes I worked on. Mm -hmm. But what drew me here was a job, and frankly, what kept me here was quality of life. 
Yeah. What about the quality of life? Is it the weather, the food, or something beyond that? Oh, there are a lot of things that I love about Washington, D.C., which is my hometown and where I lived for nine years before I moved out here. I get those here, plus a lot of other great stuff. So it's a walkable, green city, uh, great public transportation. People, though, are happy to live here in a way that was not often the case in my hometown or a lot of other people I other places I've lived. Like people come to California and come to San Francisco, at least it used to be the case, because they wanted to be here. And there was just a joy in that. It was a great place to be single. As an adult, a lot of cities kind of empty out of your peers as they start to get married and have kids. And if you don't at the same time, particularly DC, it can get a little isolating. I could always find someone to go for a hike on a Saturday morning. There was always something interesting to do. And yeah, the weather's great, the food's great. If you can afford a place to live, which is an increasing challenge here, then it's a terrific place. But it's also becoming a really class-stratified city. We have fewer children per capita in San Francisco than any other city. In the wow. So it's interesting that I actually came from, in a way that I would call a military family. But I remember growing up, I just had no interest whatsoever talking to my dad about policies and systems and, and politics in general. But now, as an adult... I'm incredibly intrigued by people in your position who not only believe that you can influence system, but you have done that and in your position for more than a decade. You know, what are some of the scenarios and I guess at the beginning of your career or maybe examples from more recent cases that what does the process look like, you know? For advocacy? Yeah, for advocacy. What do you find the issues are and how do you go about approaching it? In some ways, it'll sound like lots of other things, like like figuring out what kind of business to start. I mean, you are drawn to certain kinds of problems for reasons that maybe you don't know. Like for me, why it is that I'm really drawn to issues around families. So I ended up working on education issues, not because I was an education geek. I'm more of a generalist, but it's such a critical issue, not just for the person who's going to college, but for their kids and for their parents. For me, there has to be a really clear connection to what it's going to be like for someone to live their life and how my work could maybe make that better. The environment's just as important because we won't have lives at all if we can't figure out how to save the earth. But for whatever reason, it doesn't speak to me in the same way for what I want to work on. I don't know why. But whatever issue you're working on, advocacy has a sort of basic arc, but it never looks the same twice for the way you actually apply it because you're dealing with a such a complex world things are changing all the time it's you figure you you identify a problem there's some problem that you really work on understanding how it came to be and then what might help solve it and then you start looking for different ways that you might be able to move a solution forward could you do it through law could you do it at the federal level or at the state level? Could you do it through shaming? If it's something about employers, maybe, you know, what, what are the levers that might help shift from where we are now to closer to where we should be? And which ones seem feasible given the environment? What are the conditions you would need? And can you create those conditions? What can you do to make a more favorable environment? Who do you need on board? Who are the interests? Who has a stake in the issue on, on all sides? and which ones need to move and how. And do you know how to do that? Do you need other people who have those relationships? I mean, I, again, I think some of that's just how you operate in the world when you're trying to make anything happen. Mm -hmm. um, but you need to have a kind of sense of what your toolkit might look like, and it helps to know about how other people have done things before, both in your issue area and in others. And you just, sometimes you're just throwing spaghetti against the wall and seeing what sticks, especially if it's in listening to the Face World podcast. I'm your host, Fei Wu. Today on our show, meet Lauren Asher, president of Asher Policy Consulting. Her expertise is aligning policies and systems with the lives and needs of low-income students and families. Remember 
do you recall scenarios when you thought things were difficult but maybe have gone more smoothly than you expected or things that appear easy at the beginning but turn out to be really intricate and and sort of complex to to navigate it's hard to pick just one of either and try and be succinct uh for example when i was working with someone who knew a lot about student loans and ended up getting a grant that let us start something called the project on student debt we thought it was going to be a two-year project to take an issue that affected millions and millions of people but didn't have a constituency like people didn't identify as borrowers there was no community of borrowers there was no story that told a kind of public clear narrative about how we ended up with so many people having to rely so much more on student loans than anybody really realized it was treated like a personal problem like you had student loans you might not even tell anyone else about it and there wasn't a movement to find solutions because there wasn't a sense that there was a systemic problem and people in higher education knew that this shift was happening but it hadn't been named we didn't even know what to call it like student loan debt college debt like we just kind of thought well student debt felt like it wasn't just college the way people might imagine college and we thought well we'll we'll build awareness and we'll at that time politically the odds of a big new policy happening at the federal level were pretty small but there was some money that we knew was being misspent in the federal loan program that if it could get reallocated maybe could go towards something better we came up with a tax credit proposal because republicans controlled congress and tax credits were an easier sell than something else we we tried a bunch of different things but we also made a very strong case for changing the way student loans were repaid and making it easier for people to tie their payments to a reasonable proportion of what they earned mm -hmm. and also have a light at the end of the tunnel so that after a certain amount of time if you're making payments based on your income and you still haven't paid off your loans you can move on mm -hmm. um because what you don't want is for student loans, which are supposed to help people get ahead by getting an education, actually put them farther behind. Mm -hmm. Anyway, after uh, things changed, the environment changed. Uh, at the time we started, Republican president, Republican Congress, then uh, there was a change in Congress, and policymakers who were kind of interested in what we'd come up with thought, oh, maybe we can move it forward. And just through mechanisms like how you can attach certain things to a bill that might not even be about that. Uh, we took what was a proposal that we'd done as a regulatory proposal we took to the education department almost as a stunt, just to have something to point to because we knew they probably wouldn't say yes, became a bill that became law, was signed by President Bush at the time. And then we were in the business of figuring out how to help people find out about it and make sure that the rules for it were going to be helpful. So it moved really fast. Mm -hmm. You can start something thinking you're going to spend two years raising awareness because there's no way to move a real change forward. And then a window will open up. It might be an election that changes the environment. It might be um, that you're able to get news stories that get certain people interested in ways that, that change the way people think about a problem. And then you want to make sure you've got your solutions kind of in your back pocket, ready to whip out, because you never know. Wow. It sounds like the policy making and influencing a policy and making something actually happen sounds to me very much like the making of a Disney animation that takes, <laughs> you know, five, eight years and in, in her case, hundreds of people involved. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Same thing. But one of the major difference is the politics in general does change. The one thing I could relate to that is the green card process. And I cannot tell you within uh, five years how many times the policy related to directly or indirectly related to the green card policy changed. And even, you know, the lawyers would take the lawyers themselves three months to learn, mm -hmm. to process yep. and to really understand. And the moment they understand, they submit the new paper, something else changes. You know, recently interviewed a woman who uh, basically devotes her life to help with the uh, Syrian uh, uh, crisis. And, you know, she talks about people who are waiting to be allocated to these countries. If the policy changes, they had already been waiting for 15 to 20 years. And now it just becomes another indefinite waiting period. And to me, that it's just so heartbreaking, you know. It's fascinating. I know you thought it was a long explanation, but people actually want to know what it's like 
I think about all the places that you've been to and, and, you know, for invited as a speaker, most recently in Brown University, where you graduated from. I think this episode is so special. Most people read those articles, some go in in depth, in details. But much of that, and I'm interested in learning more, is when you do have five, 15 minutes to speak about this very thing, and you sort of have to bundle things up, and then there's maybe a a marketing message, everything is abbreviated. Like, how, since I'm not really there at most events, like, how do you go about... It all depends on your audience, just like anything else. And I think your analogy to film production is a great one, because you have so many moving parts. And I'd say you probably have less control over the moving parts as an advocate than you do as a film producer. Although as a film producer, you can't control whether the people you work for are going to change priorities or change personnel. And that's effectively like a change of politics. You know, what what might be a, a funding stream that you thought you'd be able to get disappears. You might have someone attached to a project who then decides they'd rather do something else. I mean, there's always change. So to get... Uh, income-based repayment for federal student loans from a concept to something that people could use now more than 7 million people mm-hmm. are in a program based on that policy model that we came up with. We did a lot of different things. We brought, we went actually to people in the lending industry and people who might not naturally be aligned with our focus on students and low-income borrowers in particular to see if there were ways of describing the goals of this policy model, this kind of plan that they felt comfortable with or that they didn't feel comfortable with. And in the end, we got a lot of people, lenders and students and colleges, rarely do all three agree. It's hard to find two of those three interests to agree on a lot of stuff, all signing on to the goals of the work. So rather than trying to make them agree to every little bit of exactly how it was going to be designed, which we wouldn't have full control over anyway, because it was going to go through some kind of policy process. We got everyone to agree on the goals and to put their names on the dotted line. And we had a website where we could show dozens and dozens of members of Congress and people from all these different sectors saying, we think that the goal of fair and affordable payments and a light at the end of the tunnel is a good one. And whether some of those people came on and are off over time, whether we were going to have to keep curating that list for 10 years or for one year or for two, we couldn't predict. Mm -hmm. But once you get people signed up for a goal or a principle, then it's a little easier to get them to at least not oppose the more specific way it's going to work. But to come back to kind of how do you take, I hate to be the it's complicated person, but when you care about how things work and not just what they sound like. And if you want to make sure that a slogan turns into something real for people and isn't just a slogan that gets waved around for political purposes, you sometimes find yourself in that box. So talking to the press, talking to people who aren't experts in the field, you always have to think about, well, how much information is too much? And what do they really want to know? Like what matters to them? And what is my goal? Is my goal to be part of this story, in which case you just say something inflammatory, you can be part of a story. But when you're an advocate, your goal is to convince people or to convince people either that something that they think is right isn't right or that um, something that you've got to say is worth paying attention to and that there's something that you want them to do. I think it's like anything else, marketing, sales, the more you know your audience, the easier it is to figure out. And often, if you come at them with something unexpected, it helps them pay attention. So I definitely, like you said, that's a complicated uh, matter. And fortunately, unfortunately, sometimes people listening to podcasts or seeking content out want quick and easy solutions, uh, not just student loans, but pretty much all aspects of life. Um, so I'm intrigued to ask this question, which is we'll build up to that. One thing that kind of opened my eyes, you know, when I applied to college from a private high school, you know, my parents certainly didn't have like so like so much money. I had to be careful with my decisions. But at the end of the day, first of all, we weren't qualified for scholarships, student loans. So prices, the price range seems similar, whether it's Harvard or some state college to us is all very expensive. But I remember the advice to me from my relatives were, it's not your problem. Don't worry about the tuition. Just get into the best college you could get into. And then over the years, I realized how privileged that 
recommendation even was most of my friends from lower income families that their number one advice, if, if they're lucky to have one, uh, was to go to community co- community colleges. And we started talking about this, that this may or may not be a wise decision for them. And I want to learn more about why and how should they go about seeking out a better sure. position for themselves. I mean, sadly, I think it's a very small proportion of Americans or people who live in America who are raised in an environment where it's assumed they're going to go to college and it's assumed there's going to be enough money to pay for whatever they might choose. But even just the assuming you're going to go to college, let alone finish, uh, isn't something that you can count on uh, for the vast majority of young people. That's the advice they're getting. The advice they're getting is try not to spend too much. You, know, you probably can't afford it. They're, they may be getting it from their parents. They may be getting it from their school counselors if they even are able to have an interaction. Sometimes their school counselors have hundreds or even thousands of students per counselor in, in lower-income schools and neighborhoods. They may even be getting it from schools themselves. They may know people who went to college and ended up not being able to finish or who went to things that called themselves colleges but were really kind of rip-off businesses and got left worse off than if they hadn't gone at all. Mm-hmm. So it's true that if you look at sticker price alone, just tuition and fees, community colleges generally look cheap. And community colleges are an incredible resource in this country. And here in California, we have our community college system is one of the largest education systems in the world. And it enrolls one out of 10 American undergraduates. Oh, wow. I didn't know yeah, and one out of five community college students in the country. It's an extraordinary resource. But for students who are actually ready for four-year school, who are academically prepared for four-year school, being told to just go to community college and particularly to go part-time can be bad advice because community colleges serve the largest share of needy students and they have the fewest resources to support them, which is wrong. It shouldn't be that way. But also going to school part-time, research shows again and again, makes you much less likely to actually finish school. So while the tuition and fees may be low, the total cost of being in school is not. You still need time, you know, and time is money. You need time to go to class. Research shows you need about two to three hours of study time and talking to teachers and students being on campus for every hour that you're in class to get a good grade for most people. You need to get to and from campus. You need a safe place to sleep. You need enough food. You need a car that won't break down or a bus pass that you can afford. Those things add up to the point where when you look at net price, which is you take tuition and fees and all those other costs that are considered educational costs under law, and you subtract whatever aid you can get, you often end up paying more to go to community college than to a four-year school. Wow. So that's that's very counter counterintuitive. How should someone, I mean, this is not, I don't believe in, follow these 10 steps and your success is guaranteed. That's not what we're talking about here. But how should one 18, 20-year-old go about thinking about the calculation, the math, and what goes in there? Because as we know, their parents probably aren't capable of providing that assessment to them. So what are your thoughts there? Well, I'm struck all the time about how even people who themselves are highly educated have trouble navigating this question about what is college going to cost me or my kid. It is not an easy thing to figure out and it should be easier. And that's why I've worked for years with people. Uh, and this is a, something that has bipartisan support, even in this day and age, to make all college financial aid offer letters formatted the same, have the same information, presented in the same way, so it's easy to compare. See, that, that kind of solution isn't a costly one. It's so practical, and even that is hard to move forward because sometimes colleges don't want to give up the what they consider to be a marketing tool or to have to change their systems to be that transparent. And because the lack of transparency can work in the favor of some schools, um, but not in favor of students and families, whatever their background. But I think the, the advice that Uh, people I know and respect give is always tailored. But broadly, the best advice I and they can give is don't stop at sticker price. And think about sticker price, not just as tuition and fees, but as tuition, fees, housing, food, transportation, um, and books. 
And those numbers, colleges actually have to publish those numbers. And there is a good federal website that has all the data that colleges report for what they think it costs on average for students who are going to live at home or not live at home and or live on campus or not on campus. And those are good starting points. They're not perfect numbers mm -hmm. and they can be game for different reasons, but at least you get a ballpark. Mm -hmm. And there are things called net price calculators that all colleges have to provide due to federal law that group I was with for years helped get passed that let you get a personalized estimate. It might be a rough estimate, but it, it's an estimate of what your net price would be, how much aid you'd probably get to offset that full package of costs. Because then at least you know if a school that maybe looks expensive on paper might not be as expensive as you thought. And one that you thought maybe was cheaper because of its tuition, when you add in all those other things and available aid, maybe it would end up costing more. Net price is what you've got to save, earn, or borrow after grants and scholarships. And that concept is still one that is unfamiliar to most people. You are listening to the Face World Podcast. I'm your host, Fei Wu. Today on our show, meet Lauren Asher, president of Asher Policy Consulting. Her expertise is aligning policies and systems with the lives and needs of low-income students and families. Are there resources, or is there a single resource or other resources for people to actually educate themselves ahead of time or just do some research? rather than relying on that piece of paper, you know, from the college itself? Like, do any of those come to your mind? There are so many wonderful people out there working directly with students and families and developing resources. And the hardest thing is if you're not already in the higher education world, figuring out where to find this stuff and what to rely on and what to be skeptical about. These net price calculators that all colleges have to post they're helpful estimates, but they're they're not entirely apples to apples. Or I'd say it's more like, you know, Granny Smith's and Delicious. Maybe they're all apples, but not the same kind. But they give you a starting point to think about where to apply. Once you've decided where to apply, and there you should give yourself a little room for stretches um, and for schools that maybe you think might not be affordable, but might be able to offer you some resources and supports and programs that you're interested in and see what happens. Once you get your aid offer, then the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is called the CFPB, has a tool where you can, if your award letters aren't in easy to compare forms, where you can enter stuff into an online form and then, and then get the comparison, let you look at how they end up on net price. Mm -hmm. This is, at the moment, there's more information than there's ever, ever been before about college prices and college outcomes. But finding it and how comparable it is and how meaningful it is is another story. Well, on that path, what I definitely uh, want to chat about and very passionate about as part of this conversation, I don't regret at all, it took three years, is the fact that with all the vast amount of knowledge that you possess now, uh, there is a, a new horizon and transition for you to explore uh, other similar or different opportunities out there. And I want to kind of learn, and this is an exploration with you. Maybe you're thinking on the spot right now, like in terms of what you, what you want to do, where you want to go next. Uh, it was a really hard decision to leave. Well, it's called TICAS, the Institute for College Access and Success, which was my home for 13 years. And I was leading it for almost nine. And it's an incredible group of people. And we accomplished pretty amazing things. Uh, like I said, now more than 7 million people are benefiting from the loan repayment program. We helped design and make sure got improved and was available to people uh, every year when people apply for student aid. They're doing so with a process that's a much, much simpler, easier process than it used to be. You know, feel good about that. Here in California, more than $100 million a year in aid is going to the lowest income students that wouldn't have existed otherwise. So it's hard to say, well, I'm just not going to do that anymore. Uh, it's not about caring any less about the issues or the students' that we were working to help get access to affordable quality education. 
it was about realizing that I needed a change of role, that spending so much time keeping a small nonprofit running takes its toll. And uh, I was working 60, 70, sometimes 80 hours a week with a group of passionate, brilliant, motivated people who I miss every day. But I needed to slow down and figure out what I most wanted to be spending my time on and how to shape this next phase of my life. Mm -hmm. My kid's 10 years old. My parents are aging and starting to have health challenges. Uh, And I was burned out. Yeah. You know, this is a message that everybody could relate to no matter how how much that we are absolutely in love with the things that, you know, we used to do. I think self-care is something that's not to be overlooked and it's something that we, we talked about briefly as well. But what are some of the themes and maybe areas that or people you want to connect with or talk to? What do they look like? Well, I had to start with this question of, can I tell the difference between what I'm good at and what makes me happy? And I can't take credit for that question. Someone asked me that. I saw a career coach, I don't know, like 20 something years ago before I moved to California who asked me that question. And I, I keep coming back to it. There are a lot of things I can do reasonably well. That's true of lots of people in this world. And the more experience you have, the more things you know you can do. But it makes me happy to know I'm doing something well. That's still not the same as what makes me happy, really. And I didn't feel like I could give a good answer while I was still as immersed in running this organization as I had to be to do that job. So I took a little time off and tried not to think about work for, and honestly, to be able to do that, it's because A, I had a ton of unused vacation that I cashed out and B, I have a husband with a good job in health insurance who's willing to support me in making this transition. And that is a rare and wonderful thing I'm really grateful for. But I just had to kind of read novels and clear my head for a little bit and then come back to this question of if I could choose, what would I want to do? And I'm still answering that question. And honestly, my whole life is a process of answering that question because it's not like I had a plan. Um, it was really do good work with good people on causes I care about and hope that I'm making a difference. And it's still that. Um, but there are a lot of causes I care about. Such as? Um I spent a lot of my career working on work family issues. How do you design workplace policies and opportunities so that both women and men can have decent, satisfying jobs, uh, decent pay, and be able to take care of themselves and their families? Uh, I created the first job share at a place I worked a couple jobs ago. It's where two people share one job. Um, and a lot of people have this idea that it's really, really hard to do, but it actually can work incredibly well. Um, I had, you know, I've always had people who've worked somewhat non-traditional schedules, um, family medical leave and workplace fairness policies, fair pay, women's rights. I've kind of moved from kids issues and women's issues and students issues. They're all really about the same low and truly middle-income families who are struggling in ways that they frankly shouldn't have to struggle quite so hard given the country we live in. But I love this education work, which I totally fell into because I was consulting for a while after leaving a prior job and I wanted a local client. I wanted someone I could talk to. And a friend said, oh, you should call this guy. He needs some help with something. And that's, lo and behold, where I ended up for 13 years. So... I feel like I could be working on issues around healthcare access, on issues around um, housing affordability, uh, children's access to quality early childhood education, and the workforce issues, you know, making sure that people who are providing education are getting decent pay and benefits um, and be very motivated to get up every day. But I keep coming back to this education work and the work around students and affordability and what people need to actually succeed in school and feeling like I'm not really ready to let that go. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are some different ways to come at it. Yeah. And that I want to spend more of my time on strategy and less on operations and fundraising. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. because I think I got too stuck in the maintenance parts of the job to be as creative and energized as I know I'm capable of being. Yeah, I think there's so many ways to be strategic and creative this day and age, um, which podcast as an example, but not just the act of running a podcast, but also the content that we create and how people can go about consuming that. And people are getting so much smarter these days as well when they read a piece of content that they sense that the writer cares. They they get they get that right away. You know, there's a huge difference between a you know a Fortune 100 or 50 sort of organization putting forward the most beautiful photography and video production and a content that doesn't quite resonate with a group of people, but as if they put so much money and resources into it, they can tell the difference. You know, versus a woman maybe in a basement writing a piece of content, <laughs> but she really knows what she's talking about and she's writing that just for you and she's telling the truth. Um, I just feel like there's so much you could offer that, um, you know, when it comes to healthcare, my gosh, education, healthcare, finding, looking for jobs, myself as a foreigner throughout this entire process, and I'm fairly well educated, I'm fairly smart, and I couldn't tell you how confused I've been through every, every single step. And I wish there was someone who wasn't just simply, you know, a spouse or a friend or a parent, but somebody who actually gets it, can look at it with, you know, with a different perspective. And, you know, I've thought a lot about how part of what challenged me in my last job was not having time to volunteer. I kind of felt like I was already, I already gave up the office. And, um, and part of what I want is a little bit of that chance to to engage more with folks who maybe I could be helpful to and also learn from. Because the truth is you can't be a good advocate unless you're really listening to what people actually need. You can have lots of people have lots of theories about what's going to solve a given problem. But it's not until you talk to people and hear about what it's really like for them, what they're up against, what their hopes are, what they're struggling with, what's confusing, that you really start to see creative solutions. And that I think we see in the tech industry all the time in terms of of crowdsourcing and and sort of how much input you can get in the healthcare side of like patients sharing their experiences and identifying new side effects of drugs that people didn't realize or all, all kinds of things that are just kind of amazing. You are listening to the Face World Podcast. I'm your host, Fei Wu. Today on our show, meet Lauren Asher, president of Asher Policy Consulting. Her expertise is aligning policies and systems with the lives and needs of low-income students and families. There are a few really basic things for people to know, whatever their resources when they're starting this process of deciding where to go to college or helping their kids figure it out. They are to, as I said before, always look past the sticker price, look at the whole cost, and then look at what kind of resources are available to help help offset that cost. There's often more aid out there than you think. Research shows that low-income people are tend to underestimate how much aid is available. High-income people tend to overestimate how many scholarships are available. But there's an awfully huge variation in what college is going to cost you in particular. Even at a school where you can get averages, your own situation will be different, and you only find out by going through the process. Be open to the idea that schools that you thought were out of your reach might be within, and schools that you thought would be really affordable might not be as affordable as you thought. So don't limit yourself too much. Another is file the FAFSA. I cannot say it enough. File the FAFSA and file it as early as you can. It is the free application for federal student aid. Don't let anybody tell you you have to pay anything to fill out this form. It is really not that hard for most people. Uh, It, in many cases, could take 20 minutes or less, not always. And there are people out there who can help. But if they try to charge you, beware. It becomes available in October each year for the school year that starts the next September. And the earlier you fill it out, the better chance you have of getting all kinds of aid that is uh, first come, first served. Federal student aid is not first come, first served. If you qualify, you qualify. But a lot of state and college and private scholarships, you do better if you're towards the front of the line. 
That's great advice. I, I love how we closed on that. Um, thank you so much, Lauren. me again. I want to thank you very much for listening to this episode, and I hope you were able to learn a few things. If you enjoyed what you heard, it would be hugely helpful if you could subscribe to the Phase Royal podcast. It literally takes seconds. If you're on your mobile phone, just search for Phase Royal podcast in the podcast app on iPhone or an Android app such as Podcast Addict and click subscribe. All new episodes will be delivered to you automatically. Thanks so much for your support.